Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness, and keep you in life eternal, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In her excellent talk on repentance last week, Lisa reminded us of two words, I'm sorry. Two words which can be such a barrier for us in our relationship with God and with those around us. In the words of the singer-songwriter Elton John, sorry seems to be the hardest word. Today we're looking at three words which I suggest might be even harder to say or perhaps to hear. I forgive you and or you are forgiven. For some of us, they might even be impossible to say or to hear. Even today, over 35 years since it happened, I'm still affected and struggling with the uh, effects of working for a man who, for nine months, made my life a complete and utter nightmare. He loved nothing more than to ridicule other people, to put them down in public, and to humiliate those who reported to him. I'm convinced that for him it was a total sport and it made him feel very big in front of his own bosses. But for those on the receiving end, it was utter torture. He shattered my confidence and self-belief and I found myself dreading going into the office for fear of what humiliation was going to come my way. I still find myself, even today, waiting to hear his barbed comments or obtuse put-downs, even though I know I'll never see him again. It was beyond bullying. Trust me, I've seen enough bullying in a workplace environment. This was spiteful behaviour. And I will confess, I have not, and even now, remain unable to forgive him for what he put myself and others through, just in order to make himself look big in the eyes of others. There will no doubt be many of you here this morning who, for whatever reason, will have been on the receiving end of other people's abuse, actions and words which still haunt, hurt and affect you. And you may also find it difficult or maybe even impossible to forgive even after many years or perhaps a lifetime for those actions. On the other hand, there may well be some of you who don't believe that you in turn can be forgiven for some of the abuse or behaviour or actions or words which you've handed out to others, which have caused them hurt and angst and which have also hurt and upset God. Sadly, there are some who truly believe that they are beyond forgiveness, beyond redemption. And as a result, they dwell in a permanent cloud of self-loathing, lack of self-worth, and in a burdened state of continual guilt. William Shakespeare penned these words in Richard III. My conscience has a thousand several tongues, and every tongue brings in a several tale. And every tale condemns me for a villain. Jimmy was sent to prison for, for his crimes, but he told the warden that he wasn't worried at all about serving his full term. 
the warden asked him why, since most prisoners immediately start planning how quickly they can get out. And Jimmy replied, well, my wife has never let me finish a sentence in the whole time we've been married. <laughs> Takes a little while to get that one, doesn't it? Yeah. We should all of us be serving a whole life tariff because of our sin against God and against one another. But for the Christian, if we truly confess our sins in penitence and in faith and seek to turn away from those things that lead us into temptation, then we can and will receive a total pardon from God. That sentence will immediately be commuted, struck off, forgotten. A commentator on this passage was writing that their road had been vandalised by the painting on of a curse word into the tarmac. The neighbours had tried to paint it over, but you could still read the word. A short while later, the road was totally repaved, covering the word completely. It was, the commentator wrote, as if the stain never existed. It was still there, but it carried no weight. Another commentator suggested that it's in another Shakespeare classic that we can see how the power of guilt and shame can take over and make you suffer if you try to insist on dealing with it in your own way. Macbeth starts, as we probably all do, as a noble figure, but as time progresses, he develops a hunger for power. But there's a problem. In order for Macbeth to realise his dream, he must first get rid of King Duncan, who stands in his way. Lady Macbeth comes up with a plan to kill the king and make way for her husband to wear the crown instead. Macbeth is unsure at first. He's fearful and not convinced that murdering Duncan is the right thing to do. And so he and his friend Banquo seek out the advice of three witches who tell Macbeth basically what he wants to hear, that he deserves the throne and that he'll soon become king. As soon as the murders are committed, Lady Macbeth and her husband are overwhelmed with guilt for what they've done. And because they don't deal with their guilt in the right way, they dive even deeper into the darkness. At one point, at one point Lady Macbeth mocks her husband's guilty feelings by saying that he's sick in the head. Instead of recognising her husband's need for forgiveness, she says to him, you do unbend your noble strength to think so brain sickly of things. Go, get some water and wash this filthy witness from your hand. Macbeth is on the way to possessing all the power he ever wanted, but he's now powerless over his own mind. He starts having problems sleeping. He has tormenting nightmares, begins hearing voices. His wife can't sleep because of the guilt on her heart, and she begins to feel desperate because she doesn't think that her husband is adequately covering his tracks or hiding his feelings in front of others. She goes into trances, recreates the murders while walking in her sleep. The best that they can do to deal with their guilt is to incessantly wash their hands over and over again to wash the spot out. Things go from bad to worse as Macbeth sees things and people who aren't there. 
but also the people that he's murdered. He's flooded with paranoia, anxiety, spinning out of control. And even after he becomes king, he still can't find any satisfaction. He craves more and more power, kills his friend Banquo, and once again turns to the evil witches for counsel. She becomes so tormented and depressed that she eventually dies, probably by committing suicide, leaving Macbeth alone. Finally, in desperation, he has the innocent wife and child of the noble Macduff murdered and ends up himself dying at the hands of the avenging Macduff. The tragic story of a once noble soul eaten away by sin in his ultimate destruction. Not just the destruction of his life, but of his character and of his very soul. What are you and I do with our guilt? Do we compulsively wash our hands or take showers to try and wash it away? Pontius Pilate and Macbeth ought to be proof that this isn't sufficient. Do we go through religious rituals to try and quiet the chorus of guilt that sings in the quiet of the night? Religious ritual has never done one thing to absolve any person of their guilt. All the water in all the world wouldn't have washed away the guilt that Macbeth felt in his heart. Pilate had tried washing his hands of his responsibility for the death of Christ, but instead of leading to his cleansing, it led to his insanity. We try every remedy under the sun to absolve ourselves of our guilt before we finally, hopefully, turn to God. None of our solutions will work apart from Christ. The prescriptions of the tabernacle and the temple couldn't deal with the people's sins at a depth that would free them from the guilt and the shame they carried from day to day. In verse 1 of our reading, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the sacrifices offered day after day, year after year, could not make perfect those who draw near to worship God. Untold millions of animals were sacrificed in Old Testament times. On the day that King Solomon dedicated the temple, we read in 2 Chronicles that he offered a sacrifice of 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep on that one day alone. But it wasn't enough. Because as Hebrews 11 says, those sacrifices can never take away sins. If all those millions of slain animals and religious rituals performed by the multitude of priests couldn't completely cleanse the people of their sin, then what hope is there for you and I? Is there a hope? Yes. I was hoping for a little bit more of a resounding yes, but yes, the answer is a resounding yes. Because every one of those countless animal sacrifices points us to the one perfect and atoning sacrifice that truly matters. The one that Jesus made for us on the cross of two pieces of wood and three nails. That's why in John 1.29, the first thing that John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus was, Behold! Behold! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Hebrews, we see the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices offered at the tabernacle and in the temple 
to deal with the pressing problem of sin. Jesus would never have come to earth if it weren't for the problem of sin. We wouldn't have any of the problems in our own lives and in our community if it wasn't for sin. Sin will do you in. Sin is destroying countless lives today. Guilt and shame that is not recognized for what it is and dealt with appropriately and quickly will cause us to rot away in our very souls. And this guilt, both because either we cannot forgive or cannot in turn believe that we can be forgiven, or perhaps even both, becomes a barrier in our relationship to God and in our worship to him, even if maybe we don't even recognize that it acts as a barrier or as an issue. This series, as you know, is about shaping worship that pleases God. Our worship is for God. It's not about our own consumption. And so we're thinking about how we honour and bless God by what we do and how we do it. Not just corporately, i.e. gathering together here in church, but also as individuals. Because we, each and every one of us, has a responsibility to ensure that our own worship is worthy of the one true God to whom we bring our daily sacrifice of praise and worship. In the model prayer that Jesus, our Saviour, himself taught us and encourages us to use when coming before God, we ask that he forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. There's an implied agreement here between Father and us. Show us mercy, pardon and deliverance from the wrong things that we've done before you and others in the same way as we, in turn, show mercy, pardon and deliverance from the hurts that others have caused to us. We are all guilty of having done wrong things in our lives, and we've all been on the receiving end of wrongs and hurts and abuses. And so there's a need for all of us to seek pardon from God, and maybe from those who have hurt us. For our part and in in turn to pardon those who have wronged us. In Matthew 5, Jesus teaches that if you enter a place of worship and are about to make an offering and suddenly remember a grudge a friend has against you, then abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. And a few verses later, Jesus again challenges us not to hate our enemy, but to love those who give us a hard time. Don't forget, he calls us to forgive not just seven times, but 70 times seven. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that before we take the Lord's Supper of the bread and the cup, we need to examine our hearts The only way to properly receive the Lord's Supper is to search our hearts, repent, and confess our sins to the Lord. So in conclusion, Jimmy, our convict, is right in not having to worry about serving his full sentence. Although we are all, each one of us, under the sentence of death for our sins, 
Christ has, through his one true sacrifice, paved the way for those who seek repentance and forgiveness in order that they may receive a full pardon, allowing us to be released from our sentence, to be freed from the shackles of guilt, shame, and despondency. And in addition, we too can be rid of our anger, our hatred, and our hurt by forgiving those who have done wrong for us. Give mercy and pardon. Receive mercy and pardon. And allow the Son of Righteousness to cleanse you, to make you whole in his sight, so that your worship can ever be acceptable in his sight. Just going to have a short time, short time of quiet as we bring before God, perhaps for some of us, for the first time ever, a time or times when we know that we've caused hurt to others and acknowledging that however heinous the sin, God will forgive. That event that perhaps, like the graffiti in the story earlier, had burnt its way into our very being, can be, by the Lord of hosts, healed and cleansed. Or maybe you want to bring before God someone you want to forgive for causing you a hurt. And even though we might not be able to forgive them face to face, we can and indeed should and must ask the Lord to heal us from that hurt, to take away that feeling of anger, hate or shame. So let's use this opportunity to rid ourselves of those shackles of guilt and shame. So, Almighty God, who forgives all who truly repent, have mercy upon us. Pardon and deliver us from all our sins. Confirm and strengthen us in all goodness and keep us in life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen.